study sola fide. According to the richness of pure spiritual truth, the message of the cross considers this good news. That we could never render our works as rectification for our evil deeds because God only justifies in Christ those who believe. That favor that saves us is the grace that sustains us and changes us. Once wretched, now made new, because of the favor that was undue, we become new creations. But the avenue by which we are imputed righteousness is introduced by a move of God who moves us to trust in an empty tomb. This trust is hope unwavering, not an assuming or apprehensive emotion, but a moment of awakening invoked in a person who has completely relied on the gospel spoken. God knew you, so he drew you to himself. He put sinews on your bones, crushed your heart of stone, replacing it with a beating heart of flesh. How can we contribute to any of that when we were dead? By the works of the law, we can never be made right since the law reveals our transgressions apart from the light of Christ. In self-reliance, we will be choked in our pride, but through faith, God makes us justified. So we trust in Jesus for eternal days, by grace alone, through faith alone, sola fide. That's a good introduction. I like seeing those, and I like seeing the drawing, and I hope you do as well. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, turn in them to 1 Timothy 3. No, I'm kidding. Romans 3. Romans 3. Just wanted to check, see if you're awake. Romans 3, and we will uh, be looking there at Romans 3 for this week and the week to come. Well, we said all along, that the Reformation was a revolution started by asking two questions. And you have them right there in your notes. What must I do to be saved? And underneath that, who has the authority to answer this question? Now, this question wasn't just asked in the Reformation. It's as old as Adam and Eve. In fact, Job, the oldest the, the oldest book in the Bible, Job, asks this question in Job 25. How then can a man be just with God? How can he be clean who is born of a wo- woman? And we've seen in the previous weeks that the first sola, Scripture alone, is foundational and essential to answering the question of authority. Scripture alone is foundational to the five solas. You're not going to figure them out or ever come up with them apart from Scripture. And they were foundational to the Reformation. Why? Because Scripture alone is the source and foundation of all that happened. Remember that great quote. I love this quote. If I can use this quote often as I can, I would. Remember Luther's famous claim. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. 
And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. And then he says, I did nothing. The word did everything. And that's how foundational. But it was essential. It was essential because by returning to the sufficiency, the authority, the clarity, and the inerrancy of Scripture, the Reformers were able to rediscover and reaffirm the heart of the Gospel. And the heart of the Gospel is these five solas. That according to Scripture alone, the salvation of all peoples is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And they discovered that, as we are, from Scripture. Apart from the Scriptures, Luther never, ever would have started the Reformation. He taught through, you know, remember, he never saw a Bible until he was 21. And once he did, he devoured it. He lectured through the Psalms, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. He went back to the Psalms, and it was by an open Bible that his heart was open. And when our hearts are open, there are open doors for ministry. And that's how it all happened. But if that's Scripture alone, then faith alone is the biblical and radical answer to that first question. What must I do to be saved? The answer is nothing but faith alone. Faith alone was the main, main cause of the Reformation. Why? Because faith alone was the main issue that led to the Reformation, and it's the thing that links all the other solas together. Now, think, listen to the, these, the, these Reformers, what they had to say about justification by faith alone. John Calvin, the French Reformer, called justification by faith alone the main hinge on which salvation turns. Thomas Cramner, the English reformer, called it the strong rock and foundation of Christian religion. Martin Luther from Germany called it the chief article of Christian doctrine so that when justification has fallen, everything has fallen. And it's not just guys in the 1500s. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, has this to say, a church that lapses from justification by faith can scarcely be called Christian at all. In fact, here's what Packer says, the rediscovery of justification as a present reality, not just something you're in the future, not something you're working toward, but a present reality and of the nature of the faith which secures it was undoubtedly the most formative and fundamental. For the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. It bears a whole world on its shoulders. The entire evangelical knowledge of God, the Savior. And Packer goes on to list all the essential doctrines and practices of the gospel and of the church. And he says, a right view of these things is possible only when there is a proper grasp of justification. So that when justification falls, true knowledge of God's grace and human life falls with it. When Atlas loses his footing, everything that rested on his shoulders collapses too. So what we're about to look at, Justification by faith alone is the heart of the gospel and the heart of Christianity. And so we need to understand it. 
And it's only by Scripture alone that we're going to understand it. But you can't talk about faith alone without talking about the other solas. And that's what I discovered these past couple weeks. If you're going to talk about faith alone, then you've got to ask faith in who and what. And it's Christ alone. And you want to say, well, how is that possible? And the answer is grace alone. And you say, so why is it by faith alone? It's so God gets the glory alone. And so we're going to look at uh, all of these solas in one way or another today. But what we're focusing on, as you see in your notes, justification by faith alone. So I've given you a couple definitions by uh, good, reliable guys. Here's what Grudem says. It's very simple. What, what are we talking about? It's an instantaneous legal act of God in which, one, he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. And then I have a couple confessions there, the London Baptist Confession, the Cambridge Declaration. I'll let you read those. They just kind of are a full summary of what we're going to explore today, okay? So, you got your Bibles there. Let's look at Romans 3, 19 through 28. Romans 3, 19 through 28. And we'll refer back to this, but let's read it together. So follow along as I read it to you. Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. Why? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, by the law of of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He could have just as literally said, by faith alone. Now, this passage that we're looking at, everything the Reformer said about justification by faith, you can say about this passage in relation to Romans. This is the hinge that the book of Romans turns on. This is the foundation of everything else he's going to teach in these 16 chapters. And this is the chief article on which the rest of the book 
is merely commentary. So let's look at this. And, and basically, as I think about this passage, this I like to call the rare jewel of justification because when you discover it, you treasure it. And it's like a diamond, and it has at least seven facets. And we're going to, every time you turn, you see something more brilliant and more beautiful, and you just keep turning and looking at it, and you never really, uh, you never really get the full picture of it because you're constantly seeing. So we're going to look at seven facets of this jewel or seven reasons why justification is by faith alone. And we'll look at the first five, and we'll finish the last two next week. Or maybe the first four. Who knows? Let's see what happens. All I know is I knew I wasn't going to get through seven. Here's the first one. The meaning of justification. What is the meaning of justification? Well, we, I want you to begin by looking at verses 19 and 20 and then down at 28. So 19 and 20. And what you see in this passage is this passage is filled with vocabulary from the courtroom. Vocabulary from the courtroom. Justification is a legal term. This whole passage is saturated with courtroom terminology. Let's just begin in verse 19. It says, so every mouth is closed. Well, that's a legal idea. It's a legal picture of a defendant who has nothing to say in his own defense. So it's like you're standing before a judge... And the evidence has been presented, and it's clear that you are guilty. And the judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? And you say, shut my mouth. It's clear. I have nothing to say. I'm guilty. Then look at verse 19. And all the world is accountable to God. This, too, is a legal term. It pictures every person on the planet as being open to God's persecution. Being accountable to God means I'm guilty and I'm liable to His persecution. Wow, heavy-duty stuff. But when we come to justification, here's what it means. It's a verdict by the righteous judge. It's a verdict by a righteous judge. It's when he brings down the gavel. I said, next week I'll have to bring a gavel. He brings down the gavel and he renders a verdict. All right, so let's look at that. Justification is a verdict of not guilty, but more than not guilty, it's a verdict that says you have completely met the requirements of the law. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. It says, no flesh will be justified. That's scary. No flesh will be declared not guilty in his sight. Here the divine judge renders a verdict of guilty on all people based on the work. So it's like he's saying you and you and you and everyone in this room. In fact, everyone in the planet, there's not a single one of you that I will render not guilty. Wow. He says, he, it's as though he is saying, well, it's not as though, it's what he is saying is that when I judge you, by my righteous character, when I judge you by my righteous standards, when I look at my righteous law and then look at you, I must say, as a just and righteous judge, you're guilty and you're worthy of my divine condemnation and eternal judgment. Wow. But the good news is verse 28. Look down at verse 28. For we maintain that a man is 
justified. He is declared not guilty. He is declared as completely right in God's sight by faith apart from works of the law. Here, the divine judge renders the verdict that we all want to hear. That none of us deserve, but every one of us wants to hear, not guilty, you are right in my sight. According to my righteous character, according to my righteous standards, you are right in relation to me. And the only hope of getting that is going to be by faith, not by means of our works. Now, so what does, the, what does justification... Let's look at the definitions we have here. Here they are. Justification is being declared righteous by God. Righteous by God. The just judge in His heavenly courtroom of divine justice. Now, I, I thankfully have only been in a courtroom once and being the defendant. And it was by my own foolish decision to argue a parking ticket, of which I was innocent of, and I desired to be getting that not guilty verdict. But because our courtrooms are human and not perfect, it did not turn out well. And I felt what it is to be at the mercy of a judge and a prosecutor. And these two ladies, they ganged up on me, and I, I paid my fine. My wife saw my defense and knew it wasn't getting across. I wasn't communicating what I intended, and it did not bode well. Another time, I've been at a sentencing of a young man that was in our church many, 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 many years ago when I first came. And it was the first time I was ever in the courtroom at Liberty County Jail or County Courthouse. And let me tell you, that's an intimidating thing. It's intimidating. And that's a human judge. Now, picture yourself in the divine courtroom with the divine judge. And there's no pretense. And there's no, everything's transparent. And he knows it all inside and out. Justification is being in that position and God saying, You are right in my sight, according to my standards. According to my righteousness, according to my law. And it's more than being declared not guilty. It's being declared perfectly right in God's sight. Sometimes people try to find, define justification in this way. It's a handy way. I can see why they try to do it. Justification, just as if I've never sinned. But the problem with that definition is it's only half right. Because forgiveness... See, before God, we're in negative ten. And forgiveness brings us to a zero. But justification does more than that. It says not only are you not guilty, bringing you here, but you are completely right in my sight. So it's not just as if you've never sinned. It's just as if you've never sinned and have done everything God requires inside and out all the time, never faltering, never failing. Woohoo! Man, that's amazing. It's amazing. Justification is being forgiven and then some. We're com judged completely obedient to all that God requires. We're a ten. Justification is a verdict of not guilty and then some. We're judged to be completely right in God's sight. Therefore, the opposite of justification is condemnation. So look at that. Condemnation is being declared unrighteous by God. 
So justification is being declared, the verdict is rendered, righteous. Condemnation is the verdict is rendered, unrighteous, by the just judge in his heavenly courtroom. Now, there are many verses I could take you through. We won't because of time. But as you study these ideas of justification and condemnation, you see that throughout Scripture, they are opposites. When people are guilty of a crime, a just judge will say, render the verdict guilty, therefore resulting in condemnation. When a person is innocent and found innocent of a crime, a just judge will render the verdict justified. You are not guilty. You are declared right in this aspect of the law. And so what we see, and I want you to think about this, what we see is these two words, justification and condemnation, don't make us something. They declare us to be something we already are. A just judge will say, you didn't do that. Justified. A just judge will say, you did do that. Condemnation. Simply declaring what you already are. These verdicts don't make you this. They declare what you already are. So, last thing I want you to see on this. Justification is a verdict that declares us righteous, not a process wherein we are made righteous over time. Now we're going to move in to the difference between Protestants and Catholics, between Bible believers and those who present a works religion. We use the same words, but we mean two different things by that. And so I just for a moment, I want you to see what Martin Luther had been taught as a Roman Catholic, and I also want to say what I've emphasized throughout this whole series, what the Roman Catholic Church taught 500 years ago is what they still teach today. And it's this. Roman Catholicism sees justification as a process that whereby we are slowly made righteous over time as we cooperate with God's grace and as we develop a love that slowly becomes faith and that faith slowly works with God to become justified, not in this life, but you'll have to go through purgatory too, and eventually you will be justified, hopefully. This is why when you, anyone who is serious about Roman Catholicism, if you ask them, do you know for sure that if you died tonight, you'd go to be with God, almost 100% will say, well, I, I can't be sure. And indeed, you can't under Roman Catholic teaching. Roman Catholicism sees justification as really sanctification. It makes you righteous over time as you cooperate and work and, and confess your sins and do penance and are baptized as a baby and you take communion and you go through all the rules and the regulations and you crawl up some stairs there at the Vatican on your knees saying your Hail Marys and doing your rosary beads. You will become justified. It sees it as a process versus a point in time. It sees it as something we cooperate with God versus something that God declares true of us in the present. So basically Roman Catholicism sees it this way. 
grace from God, faith plus our works equals being justified. All right? But the Bible teaches that grace and faith equals justification that results in works. You see how it's totally different? You see, that's totally different. Radically different. Radically different. Okay. And, and here's what's rad. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 5. I wish we could read this whole passage right here because he moves into this idea. But just look at verse 5 for now. But to the one who does not work, whoops, okay, to the one that does not work, but believes in him, we're down here, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, he's justified. Now notice, God loves to justify the ungodly. Which is good news. And that leads us to the second facet of justification. And it's this. The great need for justification. There is a great need for justification. Now, we're in Romans 3.19, but that means there's three chapters that came before this. And in Romans 1-3, through 3, Paul is making clear the need for justification by faith. He is literally making a case. He's like God's prosecutor. And he's saying there's a case against everyone on this planet that has ever been born for a universal need for justification by faith, not by works. So let's take a, take a look at it. Two reasons why justification by faith is necessary. Number one, human sin is universal. Human sin is universal. If we took the time to move through chapters 1 through 3, we would say we would see that Paul says the tribal per- person in the deepest darkest jungles who worships nature or a tree that he carves up or a rock that he carves up who looks so sincere and who looks so pious is in fact suppressing the reality of the Creator that is all around him. And then he moves on, he says, and the moral person, that person that doesn't go to church, that person that says, I'm a law unto myself. I do good, and I try to obey the, uh, what do you call it, The, uh, the golden rule. I try to do good to others. I try to love people. Paul basically says, Tie a tape recorder around that person's neck and let that recorder record everything they say about what's right and wrong in this world and, and, and how they live and let that play their whole life. And then when they die, God can take that tape recorder and without any reference to His Word or His law, He can play that tape recorder and every person on the planet will be condemned. How many times have you in your own conscience caught yourself judging others and your conscience says, whoops, you do the same thing? How many times have you really gotten hard and down on others who are more sinful than you and your conscience tells you, wait a minute, that's me. I've done that. And then he comes in chapter three to the re- chapter 2 and 3 to the religious person. 
And he says, you know that person that has God's Word, that goes to church, maybe even went to world outreach every night and uh, reads their Bible consistently, that person too is guilty before God. And so we come to Romans 3, 9 through 18, where he just lays it on, whether you're a Jew, a Greek, a religious, a secularist, an atheist, or a believer, or you know one who thinks there is a God and tries to follow Him and tries to worship Him. It doesn't matter. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. There's none who does good. There's not even one. There's no fear of God in their eyes. And then he comes down and he says, look, chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, the glory of God. So what's the bottom line? What's going to be the final verdict by the just judge in his divine courtroom of every person that's ever been born on this planet? Divine condemnation is inescapable. Divine condemnation is inescapable. When we die and come before the just judge, the wages of sin is death and God's wrath always already rests on us. That's why verse 19 is so important. When we come before the just judge, we're gonna, our mouths are going to be shut. There won't be any, we won't have a leg to stand on. And therefore, verse 19, we will be accountable and prosecuted with divine wrath. And therefore, verse 20, no flesh will be declared right in His sight. Wow! And that declaration of condemnation won't make us guilty. It will say, you already were guilty and I'm just declaring what is true of you because I'm a just judge. You see what Romans 1 through 3 does? It shuts our mouths and it makes us accountable and we are condemned before God. Luther liked to say that the book of Romans magnifies sin. And the reason it magnifies sin so that it can magnify something greater than our sin, and that's God's grace. Let's move on to the source of justification. Because by now you should see there's a problem. We're unjust... God is just, but He loves to declare the unjust just. But how can you be just and declare the unjust just? In fact, His Word says that anyone who declares the unjust just is an abomination. So does God say one thing and do another? Does being God mean you're so sovereign that you can do whatever you want regardless of your own justice? No, the source of justification is this, verses 21 through 24. But now, but now, God has to do something because we cannot do anything for ourselves. All right? Apart, and what God does, He does, look at that verse, 21, apart from the law. Praise God, apart from our works. Our being good enough, our measuring up to God and His standards is never good enough. So He has to do it apart from the law. And then, look, the righteousness of God has been manifested. God has done something to make His righteousness available to the guilty and undeserving like us. 
not just available, but actually observable. He's actually acted and done something. What is the something he's done? It's being witnessed by the law and the prophets. prophets. So God has done something that is consistent with what he's taught in the Old Testament. It doesn't break his law in the Pentateuch. It doesn't violate his word to the prophets. It doesn't break any of his promises to Israel. Somehow God has done something that is in keeping with the Old Testament, but now it's happened in the New Testament. And what is it that God has done? What is it that has been manifested? What is the source of justification? Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace. What God has done, the source of justification is God's grace alone. That's the blank you have there. The source of justification is God's grace alone. Verse 24 can't make it any clearer. Look at it in your Bible. Marvel at it. God has manifested that justification is a free gift that is freely given by God to the undeserving, the unworthy, and the ungodly. That means usans and everybody on this planet. It's offered. Look at verse 24. We're justified freely by His grace through the redemption. Now, what's this mean freely or as a gift? Some of your Bibles say as a gift. The word means a gift. It means freely. Warren Wiersbe, a pastor uh, uh, Bible scholar, observes that the Greek word translated freely in this verse is also found in John 15:25. And here's what this word says in John 15:25. They hated Jesus without cause, without a cause. They hated Jesus. In other words, there was nothing in him to cause someone to hate him. Well, what's going on here is God has declared us right without a cause. There's nothing in us. There is no cause, no justification for him justifying us. Isn't that cool? This word is also used in the New Testament to mean without cost and without payment. In other words, we are justified and we don't have to bribe the judge. We're justified and he says, you're right with me. And he doesn't then say, and by the way, you owe me. There's no cost. There's no payment. There's a lot of people that do good things for you. And there's a lot of people who do good things and expect good things back from you. That's not God. That's not grace. We are justified freely by His grace. The source of justification is grace alone, which means we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. Instead, God took the initiative. We're in His divine courtroom. We're guilty. He's about to render the verdict, but He takes the initiative and steps in and renders a verdict, not guilty, that we don't deserve and there's no cause in us for it. Thomas Cramner, the English reformer, wrote in his Sermon on Salvation, listen to this quote, No man can, by his own deeds, be justified and made righteous before God. But every man of necessity is constrained to seek for another righteousness or justification to be received at God's own hand. Here it is. Here it is. I'm taking the initiative. 
Here it is. Remember, he's a just judge. He's the standard. We fall short. And he says, here it is. That's grace. You see, works earn us what we deserve, which is, and you can fill in that blank on your own. What is it? Condemnation. Works, our works earn us what we deserve, which is condemnation. But since no one deserves being declared right in God's sight, it must come from grace alone. A gift that only God can freely give to the undeserving. We can't demand it because we don't deserve it. We can never repay Him for it. No wonder grace alone is one of the five solas. We'll have more to say about that after Thanksgiving. But we still have this problem. How can a just God declare unjust people just? And the answer is the basis for justification. The answer is the basis for justification. So let's read this. In verse 22 and verses 24 through 25. Look at verse 22. What is it that God has done by His grace alone? Even the righteousness of God through faith in who? Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And drop down to 24 and 25. Being justified as a gift by His grace. But on what basis? Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. With whom God... displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, or you could write in there, His justice. Because in the forbearing, it goes on. How was God just in declaring the unjust just? He did it on the basis of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Look again at verse 22. There's a Jesus sandwich there. I hope each of you have taken hold of the Jesus sandwich. Look in that verse. Faith is the first slice of bread. And then Jesus is the meat. And then the other slice of bread is what is said again. Faith. He's trying to get you to understand that it's only on the basis of Jesus that you can be declared right with God. But to get a handle on the Jesus sandwich, you've got to take hold of the bread, the faith. Faith alone. And then look at verse 24. We said that grace is a free gift. But in verse 24, we we see that grace is free to us, but very costly to God. It costs the Father His Son, and it costs the Son His life, who is what was our redemption. He paid the price we owed on the cross. Look at verse 25. Again, grace is free but costly to God the Father and His Son. He had to pour His wrath out on His Son, and His Son had to take on the wrath and the judgment and the punishment for all the sins of the world. And so He became a propitiation, which whenever I see that word, I think satisfaction. God poured out His wrath on the Son and was satisfied. His wrath was satisfied against sin. So let's... Take a look at what this means. The basis of justification is Christ alone. The basis of justification is Christ alone. Justification is made possible by His sinless righteousness and His satisfactory work as the sinner's substitute. 
Now, I know we're, hey, you know what? This is God taking care of the sin problems of the world. If you think it's going to be easy or simple, you got to know, you know, right? We need sanctified thinking going on. Now, I want you to see this. At least four aspects of Christ's life. Really, from the birth, from His incarnation... All the way to his ascension to the right hand, all of that is the basis of your justification. Think about it this way. In his incarnation, he lived the perfect life. Circle that word life. That we must live, but never can. This is what theologians call active righteousness. He did what is required of us that we could never do, and that is live perfectly. Okay? So you perfectionists there, relax. You can't do it. All right? His crucifixion. He died to be the... Okay, so because we are not perfect and we're sinful, then we need to be eternally punished. Well, guess what? His crucifixion, He died to be the perfect sacrifice that we must be, but could never be because we're not good enough to be it. You say, God, I'll die for my sin. I'll make it up to you. Guess what? You can't die long enough. You're not good enough. Remember in the Old Testament, what did you bring to God to be a sacrifice? It had to be a spotless lamb. None of us are spotless. That's his passive righteousness. In other words, he said, look, here I am. Not, your, my, not my will, but your will be done. Pour your wrath on me, and I will passively accept and be the righteous substitute. Third, his resurrection. It says in Romans that he, his, he rose to justify us. He rose again as per, proof of his perfect righteousness. The only way someone could die and rise again would be if they were perfect and sinless. And that is a righteousness that none of us have, and theologians like to call that alien righteousness. You're like, man, we're finally talking about aliens in this class. I really wish we would get to aliens. No, alien righteousness means this. God has a... a Jesus, as the perfect man and the perfect God, had a righteousness that is totally alien to us. He has what none of us have. And we got to receive from outside. So Roman Catholics say, you got it in you. Just be Avis. You try harder. See, we're going to see when we study grace alone, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that we're not dead in sins. We're just sick. We just need a little help. Okay? In other words, there's a little righteousness in you. You just need God's grace to work it up. But we need an alien righteousness. We need something from outside ourselves because whatever is in us, everything's tainted. Okay, so if you have a five-egg omelet, and I've got four good eggs, but i got one rotten egg, and I whip up that omelet and serve it to you, and I say, Dane, it's a five-egg omelet. Four of the eggs are good. Dane, what are you going to say? Well, that's true. I, I, shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have chosen you. That, no, that's true. That's true. He's drank coffee that no man should drink. I've watched it. So, Dana, what would you do? You would not eat it because that one egg is in that whole omelet. doesn't matter how many good eggs in it. They're all tainted. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter what good act you've done. Every good act you've done, add them all up. There's a taint 
and a smell of sin and selfishness and unrighteousness on it all. So here's the ascension. He sits at the right hand of the Father as the perfect mediator and sacrifice that we must have. It's amazing. Jesus stands, uh, sits at the right hand of the Father as the high priest that's done his work. And so he sits down. Whereas in the Old Testament, the human priests were always standing, always working. It was tag team. Okay, it was your turn. My feet are hurting. Okay, it was hurting. Because you always had to have that insufficient animal sacrifice presented before God, pointing to the ultimate sacrifice. But when Jesus died, rose again, he, had, he finished his priestly work and he sits at the right hand of the Father. But he sits there with nail-scarred hands, pierced side and nail-scarred feet as the perfect sacrifice. Wow. More on that when we talk about Christ alone. So here's what I want you to see. That Jesus' work of redemption and propitiation is the basis of our justification. Redemption. We owed an infinite debt we could not pay, but Jesus paid that infinite debt we did not owe. Propitiation. We deserved an eternal punishment, but Jesus suffered that eternal punishment he did not deserve. Now, some call justification by faith legal fiction. God's just, you know, calling you righteous and it's, it's just made up. It's not real. Listen, listen, listen. There's nothing fictional about Jesus dying in our place. Our justification is not fictional. It's factual and it's historical and it occurred 2,000 years ago. Justification is not amnesty. This is not a presidential pardon. Nothing drives you nuttier, unless you're the guilty one, than presidential pardons. Why? Because what are you doing? Guilty people are set free on no legal basis. Okay? And here's what John Stott says, the great Bible expositor. Justification is not a synonym for amnesty, which strictly is a pardon without principle, a forgiveness which overlooks, even forgets wrongdoing and declines to be declines to being it brought to justice. No, justification is an act of justice, of gracious justice. When God justifies sinners, he's not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they're not sinners. After all, he is pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law, because he himself, in his son, has borne the penalty of their law-breaking. Wow. Jesus is the solid rock of our justification. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We have more to say about Christ alone after Thanksgiving, but for today, I want you to just think of this. Where do you stand in relation to God? I make no assumptions here. Have you received the free gift that is by grace and is in Christ alone? And let me ask you this. If you have received... Well, first of all, if you have, just take it from Him today. But if you have received that, and probably most of you would profess that you have, let me ask you this. 
Are you still on the treadmill of perfectionism? Trying to be better? Trying to be good enough? Then you're not living out your justification. Let me ask you, are you on the hamster wheel of trying harder and trying harder and yet always being in the same place and not making any progress in your Christian life? I would say to you, you have not really lived out your justification. You're right with Him. Regardless of your activity, regardless of your guilt, receive and live as one who is justified freely by grace alone through Christ alone. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's only by your Spirit, it's only by the gospel that we can even understand these things. This is a rare jewel that most of the world has never even heard of. And those that have received the precious possession, too often, Lord, we confess we don't live as if we have this rare jewel in our heart. Lord, may today and next week really do a work that only you can do. That these things move from our heads to our hearts. That they are not just something for our salvation in the past. There's something by which we live by in the present. Because we're not having to measure up. We're not having to try harder. We aren't Roman Catholics. We are justified sinners. Saved by grace alone. In Christ alone. Through faith. May we receive the gift. And then live like those who have received it. To the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Boy, isn't this good stuff? It's rich stuff. Rich stuff.